This is the Future of Cyber Risk podcast, brought to you by Team Cymru. I'm your host, David Monier, fellow at Team Cymru. Let's jump right into today's episode. Hey, everyone, and thanks for listening to another episode of the Future of Cyber Risk podcast. Today, I'm speaking with Aman Rahija, Senior Vice President, Chief Information Security Officer for Humana, a nationwide health benefit company out of Louisville, Kentucky. Thanks for chatting with us. So, Aman, can you tell us a little more about yourself, your background, and uh, how you landed at Humana? Sure. That could be a pretty long answer, David. I'll try <laughs> I actually started my career as a software developer. I did electrical engineering, but somehow loved writing code. So all the way from writing code in C, C++, Visual C++, eventually I ended doing uh, web programming, which you would think was pretty obvious given it was very close to the dot-com boom going on in 99, 2000. Uh, so I did that uh, ASP, Perl, PHP, you know, all kind of programming. Eventually, I started learning security because the website I was creating got compromised. So I wanted to understand how are the attackers doing it. So I went to Borders, picked up a couple of books, and started teaching myself, for lack of better terms, on how to hack websites. And that's how I got into pen testing uh, to start with. After that, my career journey took me to multiple different roles from uh, big banking organizations to other healthcare companies. And uh, eventually, when Humana called me, I was global CISO at a major bank. And uh, I was very intrigued by uh, what Humana is planning to do from a healthcare sector standpoint. So I took the call, understood where we are heading from a business standpoint. And what was also exciting is the potential to modernize technology which means you only get once in so many times those kind of opportunities where you're rewriting the technical stack at a Fortune 50 company. Uh, so that was exciting, which made me jump over and join this organization. Very nice. I have to ask, so coming from a technologist's perspective or a practitioner, moving into an executive role, what did you find to be the biggest challenge there? Actually, making the adjustment to be truly having a leadership role from actual solving problem hands-on was not an easy transition because I was, as I said, doing pen testing, so very hands-on, writing my own code, doing pen tests, doing my own security assessments. I had a discussion with one of my bosses back in the day. This was in 2008 or nine timeframe. When I sat down and said, I actually want to go down the management track. And he helped me on a number of fronts, including you need to be listening well, you need to understand business strategy, you need to make sure you're able to create and communicate adequate vision for the organization. So I worked through, you know, getting from an individual contributor to a manager to a director, you know, normal growth and uh, made sure that I'm taking lessons, listening on what's not working well and continuing to adjust. I am not going to be shy to admit that uh, my first team that reported to me probably had a hard time because I potentially micromanaged uh, too much to later growing into how do you trust your team, leave them alone, let them come back. And uh, that transition is hard for anyone who's 
going from a professional track into management track. But, you know, again, at this point, when you're in a CISO type of role, uh, you're relying on a majority of your organization, people in technology and applications team and infrastructure, a lot of people to do the right thing and providing the right guidance so that they can continue to meet the standards of the organization. Yeah, thank you for that. I completely agree. I'm a practitioning background myself who has moved into, you know, leadership roles. And that also was my biggest challenge was, uh, you know, kind of letting go, if you will, of the minutia, because as an engineer, you expect to measure everything twice and cut it once, you know, but at the point you're not measuring at all. And you eventually just have to learn to kind of trust the genius of the team you've assembled. And that, uh, for me, was the same. That was probably the biggest challenge. Unfortunately, there's probably even more than one team that would probably tell you I was hard to work for. But uh, I eventually tried to figure that out as well. So tell me, what's the day in the life, you know, as a modern CISO at a Fortune 500 healthcare company? What's that look like? Actually, interestingly, a good segue because, you know, we just talked about talent. Uh, That is really the biggest item on any CISO's list right now. Uh, Have we assembled the right teams? Because, you know, even though I might have my own experiences, uh, do we have all the right people in the right spots making decisions every day? That's actually one of the biggest things from my perspective uh, for for CISOs. There's uh, an obvious second challenge, which is the changing threat landscape. And I know it's something we hear all the time, but what does it really mean? Because every organization is so unique, having worked in five different organizations, having an understanding on who would want to attack your organization, why, becomes a very important aspect on how do you drive strategy for the organization. Because there are different motives, different threat actors, and we don't sometimes take that into consideration and go for, they need to implement X technology without really understanding, is that the most important thing that will get you the right protection? So having an understanding to take a step back, look at the big picture and prioritize, that is extremely important. And it's something that when I started, I observed as a practitioner in security, we weren't doing really well. And I started working with my team uh, this is when I was at my last organization and we're applying the same framework here in my current organization as well. So, so what drives strategy for a given organization? You have to have the business context. What's important? How do we make money? What are the priorities for the business? You have to understand the industry benchmarking and standards. So what I mean by standards is not just the ISO and the NIST standards, But where is the rest of the industry from a maturity standpoint can feed into your decision making? And by the way, that's one of the favorite questions that board always asks. You know, how, what is your maturity and how does it compare to everyone else? And then compliance in any regulated company is table stakes. And then fourth is the threat management. What threats, why you could get attacked, where's your most sensitive data, what controls you need to implement. So those are kind of the four pillars the business context, industry standards, compliance, and threat management, which drive our strategy. And some people do it implicitly, some people do it explicitly. We've made that an explicit framework for our organization to drive strategy. Okay. So I know your business, you guys are primarily private care, which is a big difference, I think, between public health care and private service. So 
do you guys take into consideration, you know, that there are people who are interested in your customer specifically, like you guys might be serving some of the most powerful people, you know, because they choose your business. Is that, would you say, like if you were in a public role versus kind of the private role you are, is that something that you think would separate yourself from, say, like a state-run hospital CISO? Are those kind of considerations that you take as well? So a business model has two different aspects, actually. So we have part of a business that is the payer, which is the typical insurance part of the business. And uh, yes, we have you know data from people through, through Medicare, Medicaid, and so on. So we are protecting some of the more vulnerable population of the country in that sense. So it is very important because these are the people who get scammed or you know defrauded quite a bit. So protecting that information is extremely important. And in those cases, I don't think there is as much distinction whether public or private. Because that data matters uh, similarly in both cases to protect. On the other side, from a provider standpoint, so to your hospital's example, we don't necessarily have any hospital systems, but on the provider side, we do have uh, pharmacy benefits management. We do have home care and clinics. So the context is different on what needs to be protected because if we have Internet of Things as an example, now, there are devices that we also need to protect, not just the data. Uh, because if devices have wrong reading, someone could get incorrect medication or you know there could be other consequences of something like that. So the context changes between provider and payer, and we have to apply different lens on what needs to be protected, why and how. Okay. So you also mentioned talking to your board. Let me ask you, so having come from experience in the financial sector and then now in the healthcare sector, have you noticed variation in the way interactions with the board works? Like, do they ask different types of questions? Do they have different types of concerns? Yes, to the extent that uh, generally financial industry has been ahead from a technology and cybersecurity standpoint. It's just a very common known fact in the industry, partly because there has been a lot stronger regulatory pressure in the financial industry, comparatively speaking, uh, both healthcare and financial are heavily regulated. So that part is, you know, obvious. But when it comes to specifically technology and cybersecurity, we've seen a lot more maturity from a regulation standpoint in the financial sector, which puts a lot more pressure on the boards as well. So you would see more people who have technology and cybersecurity education and knowledge in a financial sector than in healthcare. And that's common across industries. And the good news is all the healthcare companies now have been bringing more and more board members who have technology backgrounds. Uh, so we've seen that shift happen in the last four or five years, and it's getting better from an oversight standpoint. The other interesting thing is, and again, this is guidance that's available to all the board members through NACD, uh, which is uh, for corporate directors, it's an association that gives them guidelines on what questions to ask for adequate oversight. Because we have seen board members get in legal trouble because of inadequate governance from a cybersecurity standpoint. And the board members are taking it very seriously across all publicly traded companies to make sure they get the right level of information on a periodic basis. So what I have observed in most healthcare companies, 
from the past where there would be one or two updates to the board. Now you're talking about anywhere between three to five updates to the board every year. So we've seen that shift significantly where boards are asking more questions. They're more interested in understanding how things are going, interested in understanding what is the plan if you've identified any gaps and those are being remediated. The last thing I'll mention is at the end of the day, board's job is oversight. So they are not operationally telling us what to do. Their job is as obviously to make sure there's adequate risk management practices that are applied because at the end of the day, we all make risk decisions. Not everything can be fixed. How do you mitigate those risks for it to be within your risk appetite is the approach that boards are interested to understand. So thank you very much. You teed up my very next question. And that is, let's talk about the monster that is risk. Because, you know, it is, to put it in dragon terms, kind of the Tiamat, you know, multi-headed monster. How does a CISO today, like how do you view cyber risk management? So I would actually start with asking the question, does the business have a risk appetite statement? And that is the first enterprise level thing where everyone should start with and making sure there's a risk appetite statement at a business level. Now, the different components from a financial risk to credit risk to cyber risk to data risk, there are variations that people could have more nuanced risk appetite statements, but there should be something at a corporate level. So that's number one. Specifically for cyber risk, what is at least understood, fortunately now, is there are no silver bullets. So you will have to make compromises or you will have to do trade-offs. And uh, all the trade-offs means is you find other ways of mitigating risk. You might not fix everything from get-go. With that said, since the risk view keeps changing year over year, actually, I can maybe even say quarter over quarter or month over month, uh, depending on the threat landscape changing. What's important is that we are we know how we are measuring risk. So do we have the right metrics, the right KPIs, KRIs, thresholds as well that will show up somewhere red, yellow, green color based on how we are performing from a risk standpoint that informs us to make better decisions. I truly feel because even though it's understood risk can be qualitative and quantitative, the more quantitative risk measurements you can create, the better you can manage risk for the organization. There will always be certain things that cannot be measured. Like what would be reputation risk for an organization in case of an incident? That is very hard for someone to estimate, but you can still say if X number of records get compromised, it may cost you value Y. And that's why you need to go protect the data warehouse before you protect an access database that's sitting on a desktop. And so there is a prioritization element that has to be applied in that risk lens to make sure you're attacking the, the most important things. So you're sounding like your engineering background right there. Uh, yeah. If only we could measure everything. <laughs> yeah, I, I probably cannot help that aspect of my growing up. <laughs> so I have to tell you, you know, a corporate risk a statement is something that I imagine most organizations have a hard time pinning down. Have you had the pleasure of always going places that had these, or have you had to introduce this idea and coax that answer out of organizations that you've reported to? Or is this uh, something that you seem to be a, a normal thing? I have 
spend most of my career in bigger corporations that always had these statements with okay. one exception. Uh, we, there was a statement that wasn't followed really well, is how I would put it. But in general, yeah, this has been a common practice for a while. The good news is that when I joined uh, Humana, it also existed. So there's a second line function or enterprise risk function that owns that risk appetite statement for the organization. Same is true for banks. Actually, in the financial organizations lately, uh, regulators would not accept not having that statement. Right? So you, you must have a statement on what is your risk appetite to help understand how do you drive decisions. But part of this was, as you would imagine, obviously after the financial crisis in 2008 time period, which pushed a lot of regulators to make sure when banks and financial institutions are taking risk, they have a methodology on what do they gauge against to be able to say what's acceptable risk and what's not. So that has driven a lot of maturity in the industry in general. And to my knowledge, a lot of healthcare companies are doing that as well. But when you go to mid-size or smaller organizations, it's not as consistent. I know that from talking to other CISOs or other organizations as well. But I would definitely highly encourage for people to sit down with their chief risk officers. In some companies, they don't have one with chief operating officers, but have the discussion from an operational sustainability. What is your appetite? Because cybersecurity is no more just that a breach can happen and your data can be stolen. We've seen ransomware attacks it can actually stall the business. And that's happened in healthcare industry and financial industry over the last few years, multiple times. So having that dialogue is extremely important for people to understand where do you draw the line so you can make decisions accordingly. Absolutely agreed. So to our listeners, that's a genuine piece of wisdom right there. I hope you uh, take note. If you don't have one of these, uh, you should absolutely pursue that with your peers at the C-level. So I always love this question because it gives us the opportunity to be critical, both of our industry and often of ourselves. So let me ask you this. What do most CISOs get wrong about cyber risk management? That would be a long list of things I do wrong, David. <laughs> <laughs> Let's just take the top three. <laughs> okay. Um, actually, you know, there's uh, over a period of time, I've had a lot of opportunity to self-reflect on things I would do differently and I have then done differently because those may not have been the best decisions. And some of these will apply more broadly to the industry. So it's not just personal lessons, but things that I do observe uh, in the industry. So number one, I would say the struggle to prioritize is a big challenge for CSOPs. How do you put the lens of saying, this particular risk is less important than that particular risk because if exploiting, they could both have significant impact. It kind of goes back to your earlier question about risk management practices, but it is very important for people to understand on how to prioritize. Any given year, when we do a strategic planning in, we start somewhere in June, July time period and go up to October to decide where are we going to make investments the following year. We start with 50 items, long list. Here's everything we want to do in an organization to improve the security posture or and mitigate risks. 
The hard question always is, how do you pick the 10 or 15 things out of that list of 15 that are your top 10 or top 15 that will get the biggest bang for your buck and improve the security posture for the organization? Uh, so we go through a rigorous exercise. Uh, that's why it takes us weeks to go through business cases, to understand the return on investment, understand when I say return on investment in terms of reducing risk, not necessarily making money. But that's the number one important thing, which I think our industry still struggles with. The second one is there's still a lot of focus on technology rather than capability. And what I mean is I totally understand there's always going to be evolution, new things coming out that you might want to test and pursue and try to implement. But I feel like a lot of organizations haven't gotten the basics right first. So if you have a, I'm making up a number, a million high-risk vulnerabilities that are not remediated within your environment, and you're going out and getting an artificial intelligence XYZ product, it's probably not worth it. Because guess what? Those vulnerabilities are what's going to come back and bite you, regardless of the tool that you implemented. So too much focus on technology without thinking about capability as a whole on what you should go after and mitigate risks. I think we still have struggle around that in our organizations. And the third thing, which I already referenced, but uh, happy to repeat is effectively measuring is also something that, uh, again, I'm talking broadly as an industry, uh, we struggle with what are the most important metrics that I should be looking at every day? What should I be looking at every week, every month, every quarter? Uh, that help us make better decisions on a day-to-day basis and help us make better strategic decisions year over year as we think about what's coming you know, months from now, years from now. And uh, even though say, if we said top three, I will, I will throw in one more, uh, by the way, which is there's sometimes a disconnect between where the organization is headed and where the security teams want to go. And what I mean by that is businesses doing mergers and acquisitions or integrations or businesses organically growing in certain areas or the technology is rapidly changing, they're adopting data analytics or AI ML type of capabilities. How do we make sure that the security teams are embedded and involved in both when these decisions are being made and proactively giving the consulting that's needed to make those decisions in a way that we don't end up spending thousands of hours or millions of dollars later to fix problems. And it's very common, especially in the m and space, there's a business case created, the organization will go buy something, sometimes without enough due diligence, and later you find out you have to spend millions of dollars to fix all the problems we could have detected earlier. So being there in lockstep with the business on where things are headed, with the technology leaders and where things are headed, I think is a great opportunity that we should encourage people to continue to focus more on. You know, I'm very glad that you added that fourth one. So one of the biggest places that I have seen in my, you know, 26 years, 27 years practicing is where 
organizations tend to not take advantage of the security expertise that they have outside of the operational component. So for example, in recruiting, in particular around like developers or operational folks, like you should have security questions as part of your interview process so that you can avoid mistakes by ensuring these people have this mentality, even to begin with. But oftentimes organizations approach it as, okay, I have this specific task that I want to make sure gets done which makes perfect sense, right? The hiring manager in particular has some direct problem and they're looking for a specific solution and they don't tend to look at the bigger picture of, okay, now I bring this person in, but what is their state of mind in relation to their contribution to our risk to like uh, how much threat are they adding or how much risk are they adding by joining our team? Sure, they can solve this one problem for us, but you know, do they understand the overall threats that we face? And that consultation component that you touched on, I think is absolutely critical. And then to go back to your first point, you know, you talked about prioritization. I have some senior leadership who's still my senior leadership, but he introduced me to the concept Everyone knows of a to-do list, right? An organization has this to-do concept. But he introduced me to this idea, this is years ago, but of a to-don't list of the things that we should not distract ourselves with because we have already determined that they are not of priority. And there are a lot of times where paths, like decision paths, will lead you to these topics that you should have already maybe ruled out, but we get caught up in that stuff. So just to kind of add to your strategy there, I totally agree. And like I said, a to-don't list uh, sometimes is, is also a good idea. I think in, in our head, we always think about the certain things, but putting it down on paper and making principle-based here's where we shouldn't be spending or wasting time. That's a great idea. Yeah. Yeah, I think it's kind of a manifestation of your risk appetite concept. You know, it's like, uh, but in these are topics we've already agreed that we will accept. So just don't spend your cycles on them. And if your thought process ends up there, back up because you took a wrong turn, focus in some other direction. And it's a huge time saver, in particular, when it comes to managing focus, which I think is a huge situation there. And that leads me into my next question. So as an executive, you know, what do you think makes an effective cyber risk management program? And then like, how do you measure its effectiveness? I mean, we can talk about KPIs, but like realistically, you know, not counting beans, but overall, how do you measure the effectiveness of the programs that you implement? So there could be a, a multi-pronged approach from a effectiveness measurement. So metrics will be one of those prongs, no doubt about it. Having KPIs, KRIs, having thresholds, something just you know, starts blinking red when something is off track, that is, you know, I'll, I'll repeat, that is definitely an important aspect of it. I actually feel like truly pressure testing the controls is extremely important. So I know it's not a new concept to do penetration testing, but truly doing penetration testing, red teaming, even at times, you know, and I've done this before where you bring in a completely independent party and saying, black box, we're not giving you anything to start with. Test that environment. See what you find. Those are actually very eye-opening exercises because they start with nothing, just like an attacker would start. They take weeks doing recon to figure out information about your organization, just like an attacker would do, and then give it a try to figure out whether they can social engineer something, they can fish an employee or find different ways to get into an organization. So I found uh, truly testing not only on paper, but by pressure testing, by doing a pen test or an ethical hack 
audit teaming. That is, for me, from a measure of success standpoint, if I can make it hard for my pen testers, that's a success. Preventing them from getting in and being able to detect when they do get in, because eventually they will, but did my alarm bells that were supposed to go on actually go on and told me that someone is trying to misuse something? Those factors are extremely important. You're also touching on the peace of mind that comes from knowing, like you are kind of testing your army in, in the field of battle, right? Without a known or with a known adversary as opposed to the unknown. And that alone hugely, I think, allows you to have the decision-making ability so that you're not constantly in some relative state of duress, right? Because uncertainty is duress, right? And if you don't actually know if your defenses work, uh, then you're actually having some doubt and that doubt, you know, will manifest in, unfortunately, in likely poor decision-making. You know, we often, our CEO, Rabbi Thomas, he, he often talks about the idea like, you can make yourself too hard to hack but you can't go in and take your name off of the dry erase board of a targeting group if you happen to have nation state adversaries, right? Because they have infinite resources. And the only thing that's uh, going to take you off of that is, you know, well, frankly, their lack of success, right? They have to move up. And the only way to know that is exactly like you described, is to kind of go out and actually test that. Let's find out how it really works. So that's absolutely great. Yeah, and at this point, we've all known these threat actors where it's a business for them. And they're also looking for an ROI. They go after you. If you make it hard enough, they move on to the next target. And that's where my earlier point when I was talking about the four pillars, the industry benchmarking piece is actually handy because it informs you how you're doing compared to the industry. Mm -hmm. um, not necessarily drawing the analogy, you know, run faster than your friend when the bear is trying to catch you. <laughs> I was thinking that was the same. I was just about to say that. Yeah. 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 It's true but, though. There's truth to this, but it's, <laughs> but it's it never sounds good. <laughs> In this space, they definitely is. And, you know, we have it clear evidence for lack of better terms because organizations that watch uh, some of the dark web chats that go on mm -hmm. know that, you know, attackers share that information actually with each other as well. And they do move on to the softer targets, which is, at the end of the day, they are after making monetary profits. Absolutely. Works for them is being able to get in, get out as quickly as possible. Yeah, that's a, a joke for strangers and not for your friends, right? Uh, or at least not the friends you go camping with. <laughs> <laughs> so let's shift gears a little bit and let's get out your crystal ball. And what kind of things are you seeing? What kind of tools, technologies? What are the things that have your attention? And let's look out, you know, say five years. Where do you think we're headed and, and what things are exciting to you? Yeah, so I'll answer that in two ways. So one, there's a lot of excitement that got created from a technology standpoint in the last few years around cloud, as an example. Uh, I heard every organization modernizing, going to cloud. And what I feel like is lately happening is people suddenly realizing, oh, it doesn't give the financial benefits that we thought it does. We do have to rethink from a security standpoint, is it more exposure or less exposure and how do we configure and con apply controls? I actually feel like there's a great opportunity for security teams when most organizations are taking a step back and saying, are we using the cloud properly? And is that providing the business value? to also working on re-architecting and making sure the right controls are applied. 
So I actually find it exciting that that opportunity exists. I often compare it with 20 years ago or 25 or 30, you know, go back however far you want to go back. When most of the data centers were being built, security teams didn't have the opportunity they do now when new technologies are being set up and with the level of security knowledge that exists now. So I feel like this is a golden period from that perspective where we can do it right. For the most part, there will be new threats that come in, but there's a lot more understanding that this is important and we can do it right. The other thing which I feel like while it provides a lot of business advantage, whether it's data analytics, it's AI, you know, chat GPT as the latest example of it, significant prospects for a business, significant prospect that we provide better health outcomes for our members, they will get misused. Someone out there will take these same tools, same technologies. And by the way, in some cases, we know it's already happening, but more of it will happen. And we need to think about not only getting excited about how do we secure when these technologies are implemented within our organizations, but also think about when it's a matter of when, not if, someone will misuse these technologies, how will we thwart against those kind of risks? And I don't feel like there's enough discussion around those topics that happen to get ready for that futuristic uh, view. There will be, I believe, a lot more automation that happens both from a business process, from technology, and I'm I'm really hopeful from a security standpoint as well, because the volume we handled 10 years ago to what we handle today, again, there are different numbers, but it has gone five to 10 times, both from an attack surface standpoint and just the number of requests that we have to deal with, whether it's an identity space to incidents, it will exponentially grow as we go forward, just because of all the automation that business and technology is bringing in. So we have to be a lot better prepared, and we can't have too many things working manually. We need to bring in a whole lot more automation to drive things faster and better and with more accuracy. So you talk about this, let's say, a modern approach. That means that we should be maybe looking for different talents, different skills than perhaps we have been in the past. In your opinion, you know, if you're looking to build a high-performance group today, what skills, what talents is critical for a CISO to be looking for? Yeah, so you can tell me if it reflects a little bit of bias coming out of me about the engineering mindset. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but engineering mindset is going to be extremely important. It doesn't mean necessarily you have to be an engineer by trade. When I say engineering mindset, I actually mean thinking about solving problems differently, creatively, uh, coming up with ideas. How can you implement automation or engineer solutions which are not extremely manual? Those will become really, really important. Actually, they already are. The talent that's hardest to find right now in the market is security engineers and security architects. And that's for an obvious reason of what people are building now for the future. And I think that will continue to be how it goes on. The other thing that will become extremely important is a high-performing team should also make sure they have a better federation of security within the organization. And what I mean by that is oftentimes I've seen security teams measure themselves by the number of people that are on the team 
but not by the type of impact they have on the organization. I don't care if I had 300 people or 800 people on my team. What I care about is, is the organization secured and protected? So that's where the federated model comes in. How am I instilling security understanding in the management team, in the executives, in the workforce within the organization, the right behaviors and change in culture to drive better risk practices? That is the impact we want to have in the organization. So the more people we have on our team, even if it's fewer people in numbers, but who can evangelize and actually spread that knowledge and inform more people. So instead of three to 500 people, you actually have 40 to 50,000 people who are security-minded. You would have a lot better effective organization from a security perspective. Yeah, absolutely. It's like the expression, it's not the size of the man in the fight, but the size of the fight in the man, right? If you have the people who really get it and are invested, it doesn't matter how many people you have. It doesn't matter how small your army is. That's the, that's what's going to win. So absolutely agree. So unfortunately, that's all the time that we have today. I feel like we could go on for hours for what it's worth. I very much appreciate all the insights that you've uh, shared with our listeners today. But if our folks want to follow up with you or just track you, you know, as you're going along, do you have, you know, social media? Do you have uh, things that, you know, where you share your insights? How can folks follow you on? Everyone LinkedIn. That's the only social media I interact with lately. Mm -hmm. So happy to interact there. Okay, perfect. Well, thank you very much for your time. We very much appreciate you uh, being willing to come and share these insights. Like I said in our intro conversation, you know, our goal here is really to just to let folks know that they're not in it alone, that there's, you know, people, if nothing else, that they can turn to for advice and things like that. So thank you very much for taking the time out of your busy schedule to come and talk to us. Thank you, David. Really appreciate it. Thanks, Jordan. Cheers. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Future of Cyber Risk podcast brought to you by Team Cymru. For the latest episodes, please visit team-cumry.com or search Future of Cyber Risk on your podcast platform of choice. Thanks, and we'll catch you on the next episode.